Well, Florence, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Uh, we really loved your book. We There was a, a guest on the Joe Rogan podcast. Um, she was an author herself. She put a, a book that was talking about uh, climate change and, and meat stuff. And in any way, your, your book was mentioned. So that's how I... Um, how I yeah, that's funny. I actually it. I know who that is, and I've actually been on her podcast too. Oh wow! <laughs> what, what's her name? Well, I know the um, podcast. I think it's called Sustainable Dish. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's awesome. So yeah, you're... she's also recently divorced, so we had lots to talk about. Oh, oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> your book. Um, so I listened to the audiobook, and it's very unique in that it was almost like a podcast slash yeah. book. Um, how did you come up with that idea? Yeah, thanks for asking about that. I'm super proud of the um, audiobook we made. Um, I, as I recorded and reported my book, I I got like a hundred hours or I don't know a hundred files of audio tape from the scientists I interviewed, from some of the boyfriends that I dated, from my therapist, from my best friend, and so I had this vision. Um, for layering in that actual sound into the audiobook to make it sort of like this audiobook podcast hybrid. And um, I worked with Pushkin, which is Malcolm Gladwell's company, and they're really um, innovative, you know, about immersive sound experiences for their audiobook division. It's pretty unusual. And I was really, really pleased that we were able to do that. Really love the final product. Also beautiful music, original composition. It sounds really great. It does. Yeah, we love it. You did a great job. And, but for like the listeners and viewers, uh, could you briefly inter- introduce yourself and, and, and tell them what we're talking about today, your, your wonderful book? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, so my name is Florence Williams. I'm a science journalist. I um, write books, magazine articles, and I make podcasts uh, and audio products. And um, I uh, often write about things in my life that raise questions for me. And then I kind of go on the scientific pursuit, you know, figuring that other people are going to also have similar questions. Um, and then with this, with, with this last book called Heartbreak, a personal and scientific journey, uh, it just turns out that the questions ended up being, you know, a little more personal um, than they were in some of my other books. But I was really curious about why heartbreak hurts so much, why it was affecting my body and my health. Um, and then, you know, with that sort of urgency to try to get better, I wanted to bring in kind of evidence-based ideas and solutions to try to feel better. Um, and so I ended up writing about all that in the book. Uh, you did a great job. One, uh, you know, back to the audio portion of it. How did, did you know when you were making these audio recordings? Cause I'm assuming you did the audio recordings before you started on the book. What, is that something you normally do throughout your life? Do you, <laughs> you capture audio recordings? Cause it sounds like you did the audio recordings like two or three years prior to the book. Um, so yeah, I mean, the timeline was my marriage fell apart. My 25 year marriage fell apart and my ex or my, my then husband moved out. Um, and about a month or two later, I found myself at a scientific conference. Um, and I just pulled out my recorder and you know sort of cornered one of the experts on kind of the neuroscience of love i happened to have my recorder with me because at the time i was making another podcast um, called the three-day effect um, which is partly about why our brains 
change and our psychology sort of changes for the better when we're outside and in nature or in the wilderness for three days. And I was, I just, you know, I was just interviewing a lot of people as the course of sort of reporting for that book. And I just pulled out my recorder when I talked to her, cause I thought, well, maybe I'll put this in this podcast or maybe I'll put it somewhere else. And as a, as a journalist, I think it's just an instinct to record things and to take notes and because I was doing so much audio at the time, I decided that my note taking would be sort of, um, you know, on tape. And it turned out that that, that was a smart decision <laughs> when I started writing the book a little bit after that. That's, that's brilliant. It's a, uh, I think it paid off and it, it takes time to do that though, right? Like collecting all those and putting them in a, on a timeline that makes sense and goes with the book. Do you see yourself uh, looking at, instances in your life and, and wanting to record them more because you see the opportunity for the next book? I'm always looking for opportunity. Um, as a writer, I sort of move through the world, you know, with that lens of, you know, is this a story? Is this a story? Is this a story? You know, sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. But, um, you know, it was the, the writer Nora Ephron. Uh, she wrote Sleepless in Seattle, mm. and she wrote, you know, You've Got Mail, and, um, you know, uh, she wrote the, um, well, she wrote Heartburn, which was this great book about her divorce. Um, she once said, everything is copy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and I think that for a lot of writers, that's kind of how we move through the world. It's like when something devastating or amazing or terrifying or fascinating happens, we want to take notes. You know, you, you put yourself out there. Some of those conversations that you were having with your sister um, and, and friends and even, um, you know, some of the, uh, was it Ennis? That was your first boyfriend. Um, those are very intimate conversations. So how did those folks take to the being recorded? Um, yeah, they were surprisingly game. Um, <laughs> you know, not everyone I ran across wanted to be recorded or wanted to be in the book. And so they're not, you know, the ones who are in the book are the ones who were okay with it. Um, you know, I didn't know what I would do with these recordings. And uh, so after I got the recordings, I did get releases. You know, I asked people to sign releases that I could use the recordings in some future way that I didn't really know what they were. Um, so I did get permission from everybody. That's pretty smart. Yeah. Um, to kind of get into the book, um, I was talking to John about this. It's like um, you kind of found out there there wasn't a whole lot of research on um, heartbreak. Like we all kind of know, like when our grandparents or or, or or parents, when one passes away shortly after, the other one tends to pass away, um, and it, it normally has something to do with the heart. But to think there's not a whole lot of research on that. We we know so much um, things about technology and how that works, but the fundamentals of being a human, you know, like really jumping into what is happening biologically when this uh, occurs. Uh, you know, how much research w was there uh, when you when you got into this, and um, how surprised were you to find that there's not too much? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as you said, you know, there's there's so much out there about heartbreak and sort of popular music, right, or song, um, or, you know, poetry and philosophy. But um, as far as actually what's going on in our cells, and our genes and our like RNA transcription, you know, there, that's very new. 
And I was super amazed and interested to find out what that science was showing. Uh, and that's when I thought maybe there is a book here, because I think a lot of people don't know this. Um, and not only is it fascinating, but it's important, because if we know how implicated our immune systems are in our social state, right, then there's this real urgency, I think, to try to not feel lonely, to try to not feel isolated, to not feel rejected. You know, these, these big feelings, and they're important to feel them, but you don't want to dwell in them for years and years, like a lot of people do. I mean, there are a lot of lonely people out there. Um, I was also really, um, you know, fascinated by that, by the sort of growth in, in loneliness that we're experiencing uh, around the world, not just in the United States, especially in young people now, that sort of 18 to 30 age range. Those are the people who are reporting they feel the most lonely, um, which is kind of surprising in some ways. Uh, and this this started before the pandemic and only got worse, you know, in the last couple of years. So I felt like the science was really important to talk about both personally and kind of as a culture. Um, you know, why do our cells listen for loneliness? That was so interesting to me. Yeah. Mike and I, we talk a lot about health on our podcast. We like to have athletes on and, and doctors on, especially during the pandemic and stuff like that. One thing that shocked me from your book was that loneliness loneliness can actually uh, it leads to higher death rates when compared to obesity which was crazy to me because i thought obesity is the number one killer you know that's that's the king of of death in the united states but being lonely actually is right up there with obesity which is shocking to me it's right up there with obesity it's right up there with smoking <laughs> um it is it is shocking i think it's no loneliness is not just kind of a psychological bummer state it actually changes your bodies. Um, it changes your immune cells. And um, so, I, you know, I can talk a little bit about, you know, why that might be, because I, I, I do think it's interesting. I mean, I, so I worked with a geneticist, an immunogeneticist from UCLA, and we actually tested my own blood, you know, which is not something you can do kind of at a normal doctor's visit, but he has access to like special labs and special ways to kind of identify the genes and the transcription factors, you know, and all that going on in our white blood cells. So we looked at my blood and um, sure enough, you know, after the first time point, we did several time points after my divorce. And the, at, at the first time point, you know, he said, you know, you do look like you have the blood of a lonely person. Wow. Which was like, which was like, ouch, you know, that's <laughs> terrible. But it, it also didn't really surprise me because I was getting sick, you know, and, and we know that people who are lonely and identify as being lonely have um, uh, increased risk, like 26% increased risk of early death, as well as increased risk of um, metabolic disease, cardiovascular disease, um, even things like Alzheimer's and dementia are worse in people who identify as being lonely. So this guy, Steve Cole, is asking these questions of why, like what, what, what is going on on a genetic level that is making your immune cells more likely um, to get sick or making your body more likely to get sick? What's changing your immune cells? And what he's found is that in these people who identify as being lonely, there's a suite of about 200 genes and they are upregulating for inflammation. We know that inflammation right over a long period of time leads to disease. At the same time, they're down-regulating for the ability to fight viruses. 
which is really interesting because especially for like I found this out as we were going into the pandemic. It's like I need my virus fighting genes, right? Um, and so his theory about why this is is that our our brains don't really make the distinction between feeling rejected in love, right, abandoned in love, and feeling literally abandoned. You know that so that we're you know in our in our sort of prehistoric state, right? We're stumbling through the jungle now by ourselves. And our immune system pays attention to that in a big way because our immune system recognizes that we face increased threat when we're alone. Humans are much safer when we're in a group. When we're alone, we're more likely to be attacked by a predator. We're more likely to receive a flesh wound, you know, from something else. Um, and we're not really in need of fighting viruses because viruses are spread in groups. So that's the theory. Like our immune system is making this calculation that's supposed to help us. The problem is we live in modern life. <laughs> you know, we're probably not going to get jumped on by Jaguar. Um, we are going to still face viruses. And we're, in fact, going to feel abandoned or feel lonely, some of us, for months and months and months and years and years and years. And so the inflammation is like the worst response to have in terms of our health. Do you, do you think that the blood is the same uh, with... Uh, so? lonely compared to um, stress and then uh, also uh, anxiety. Do you think that's kind of the same markers? It's, are we kind of, it's not the same thing, but is that kind of the same uh, diagnosis you'd get if you had those? So uh, apparently it's not. According to Steve Cole, the blood of sort of a lonely person, those genetic markers are a little bit different from say someone who's depressed or someone who's anxious. Um, so it's not necessarily the same thing. Um, certainly if you're really stressed out, if you're feeling like you're at threat or, you know, if you're in peril in some way, you're probably going to be generating similar kind of inflammation. But, um, you know, if you're depressed, it's actually a different suite of suite of genes doing different things to your immune system. That's a, that's a messy topic. Or, I mean, because if you're depressed or you're an anxious person, more than likely you're going to be alone. You're going to want to shield yourself from community and not be around people, which then leads to loneliness. So that could just, uh, that's a nasty rabbit hole to want to get down. Yeah. I feel it's, like they're it, close it is, in relation to really hard. Yeah. I think it's hard to tease a lot of those factors apart. That's true. Do you, um, but not all depressed people are lonely. Not all lonely people are depressed. You know, there are some, some subtle distinctions there. Yeah. Wow. I would think they were just byproducts of one another. Yeah. But that's real nuance. That might be another book right there. <laughs> I want to know the difference because I'm sure there is. There's a, I, when I, when I'm in those different states of mind that, there is a difference. I just, I couldn't explain what it, what it is. Yeah. I mean, I felt like, you know, after my divorce in the wake of the divorce, I actually was not depressed, but I was anxious. Mm. Um, and I did feel, um, I did feel sort of alone in the world, you know, and that's also part of what motivated me to try to write this book and talk to these experts. Um, I really learned so much, I think about opening up about these topics and how that very act of opening up and talking about it, um, made me in fact feel less alone. So it ended up being kind of an antidote. Do, do you think, um, so you were married for 25 years. Yeah. Um, do you think the impact of divorce is greater for someone who's been married longer versus a couple that's been together for a couple of years? Um, I'm trying to think what the science has to say about that. Um, I think I think there is some science suggesting that the longer the marriage, maybe the longer it takes, you know, to sort of recover. 
but but there's so much variability right in the way people grieve and the way people process sort of traumatic or difficult events in their lives um grief itself right is an incredibly kind of idiosyncratic emotion people are going to sometimes take years to recover from something that someone else won't and our personality factors make a difference our um you know kind of resilience our sort of core resilience really makes a difference in in recovering from these life events that are um you know devastating right some people are just better at it than others um but in general you know after a long marriage there is research suggesting that you know it can take up to four years for our immune systems to return to baseline and that's a lot longer than people think and and you know, of course, there's there's also maybe 10 or 15% of people who take much longer than that. And they're the ones who are kind of skewing the statistics on death. So we know that people who are divorced are, in fact, more likely to die young. They're more likely to get sick. They're more likely to take longer to recover from an illness. Um, and that's partly probably driven by that 15% who really takes a lot longer to get over it. And that's another reason I wanted to write this book. I just think we don't really take heartbreak seriously enough. Um, we need to do. We need to throw everything we can at it. We need to get better as soon as we can because it has these implications for our health for the rest of our lives. Yeah. Do you think that? All right, I have a question. Do you think that um, distracting yourself to get over something is a bad idea, and that you really need to go through the pain? There's a lot of debate about this, about the value of distraction. Um, you need to feel your pain. If you're going to really get over it, you need to feel your pain. Uh, you need to get in touch with your emotions. You need to sort of learn right from your mistakes. You need to think about those mistakes. You need to think about what you want in the future. Pain and discomfort are actually there for a reason. And they do kind of make us slow down and think about things. And that's really healthy. But I was feeling my pain, you know, no matter what. I was still sort of crying every day for a while there. Um, and I think the distraction you're referring to that I talk about in the book is having a rebound. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there are some people who say, no, you should not have a rebound. You should not get into another relationship until you've worked on yourself, until you love yourself, you know, until your self-esteem is back, you know, all this stuff. Um, and I was like, well, where's the science? You know, is there science showing that that's true? And in fact, there isn't. And there was science showing that people who have a rebound actually sometimes recover better and more, more quickly. So their self-esteem improves because they're having a rebound. Their self-confidence improves because they're having a rebound. Um, you know, sex itself can be um, a great stress reduction, you know, technique. Um, it can be good for your nervous system if you feel safe. Right. And if you feel comfortable and that's, of course, a big if. And I wouldn't go out there and recommend that everyone <laughs> jump into a rebound fling after a divorce. I think it's a really personal decision, but there is some science suggesting that it can be good for you. I'm curious to, to know what the impact is on on the age groups. So maybe someone that has been with their significant other, you know, throughout high school and maybe they got divorced in their their late 20s. Um, they haven't really experienced life yet. Um, I think that you managed your divorce very well because you were, you're older, you're more mature. Um, you've experienced more life, you're traveling and all that, all that good stuff. So I'm wondering if someone is younger, but has been with someone, 
you know, throughout their younger years, how that impacts them. Um, do they have the mental capacity to really understand what's going on biologically? You know? Well, I had certainly, I had been with my, um, my ex since I was 18. Mm. <laughs> so I, I mean, I did know some things about the world, but I didn't know that much about, um, you know, being on my own, right. Or about navigating the world myself. Um, or who, who I would be outside of the context of that relationship or within the context of a different relationship. I think no matter when it happens, uh, it can be really freaky because you just have to figure out who you are, no matter what age you are. So I think more important than age are going to be other skills of resilience. You know, like um, I talk about this a lot in the book, sort of um, being open to new experience being open to beauty, being open to art, um, being open to nature. You know, I, I was so surprised to find out that one of the few personality traits that we can actually change as we move through life is this personality trait called openness. And the people who are more open seem to be more able to make sense of these difficult life experiences and to move on. And so through the course of the book over like the next two years that I was writing the book, I was, that was kind of my North star. Like I was like, I'm going to cultivate beauty. <laughs> I'm going to figure out how to experience more awe. I'm going to learn how to be a more open person because that's going to help me. And it was very motivating. I, I love that you, you incorporated nature in it. And I, you know, we hear being in touch with nature heals the soul and it's good for you and you get the sun on you and all that good stuff. Um, but we're not always, we don't always hear the scientific benefits from it. Um, and how it helps, not only helps your body, but helps your mind as well. Is that something that you still practice today? Um, getting out in nature and all that religiously? Yeah. Yes. I mean, all the time. So before I wrote the heartbreak book, <laughs> I wrote a book called the nature fix. Mm how being outside makes you happier, healthier, and more creative. So I was already really um, primed to sort of like the notion that being outside is really good for us. It's good for our psyches. Um, it is good for our creativity. Uh, it's good for how we interact with other people even because it makes us feel calm, makes us feel happy, makes us experience awe and beauty. But now I had this kind of urgent need <laughs> you know, to apply those lessons to this really devastating experience of my divorce. Um, and so spending time in the wilderness, you know, was, was one of the first things that I turned to. Um, and I felt like I needed big wilderness. So I, I planned and then embarked on a 30 day wilderness trip um, down a river in Utah, the green river. And um, about half of it I did with friends and family. I took my kids on part of it. My siblings were on part of it. And then half the trip I did totally by myself because I felt like I wanted to sort of commune with nature and feel that sense of calm, have a space to reflect. And then also I felt like the metaphors were so irresistible. Like I now needed to learn how to be alone and I needed to sort of learn how to paddle my own boat, right? I needed to be like the agent of my own, you know, the captain of my own ship now. And uh, so that really motivated me. And, and it had, it had sort of mixed results actually, in terms of 
you know, my blood, <laughs> my transcription factors, when we looked at the transcription factors, which is really interesting. But the time in nature for me is so critical on really a daily basis. So when you took your blood before and then you, you took your blood a couple of weeks after your trip, was the inflammation markers down? So they really weren't down. Mm. Um, uh, and that's because I was alone in the wilderness, right? Which is, you know, if, if you think about like the divorce, being heartbroken, you're sort of living in this metaphor of feeling like you're alone in the woods. And that's why your inflammation starts in the first place. And so suddenly I was trying to solve that by, oops, being alone in the wilderness. <laughs> like I was, I was like taking the metaphor seriously. And when you're alone in the wilderness, it's not like a fully relaxed state, right? You have to pay attention to everything around you. You can't screw up. You can't like light the beach on fire, you know, or, you know, lose your food, right? Or, um, you know, injure yourself. So you, you have to stay really alert in a way that your immune system is paying attention to and sort of pumping out some inflammation just in case. I think it's so funny how like uh, people coming out of long relationships always do that. They'll go on these crazy trips that they've never would go on in the first place and start living life. And so much that they never settle down again. They, they realize that they have more fun being alone and they like themselves mm -hmm. and it's, they have trouble getting into another long-term relationship. Um, how, how are you on that? Or have you already gotten to another relationship or, What's yeah, I mean, I've been in a bunch of relationships. I like being, I like having a boyfriend. I like being in a relationship. Um, the statistics actually show that most people after divorce do remarry, um, and men more so than women. Um, they often get divorced again. <laughs> you know, that happens. <laughs> that second marriages are, I think, a little bit more likely to fail actually than first marriages. Men particularly don't like being on their own. A lot of older women are like, you know what? Actually, it's kind of nice not to take care of someone and you know, pick up someone's socks and I'm kind of happy with hanging out with my girlfriends. And, um, but on the whole, most people do remarry. Most people do enter other relationships and hopefully they do it in the, coming from a place where they have learned a lot and they have thought a lot about what they want and who they are. Um, so I still believe in love. I still think being in a partnership is a great way to move through a really chaotic, uncertain world. Um, we know that from a health perspective, you know, having a reliable partner with whom you feel safe is really, really good for your immune system. Um, those are the people who live long, healthy lives. And so it's still worth looking for that. Yeah. Um, but I also understand that there are a lot of ways to love and to be loved, whether it's, you know, your friends, your community, your family. Um, these are the things we need to do that help us also feel less lonely and to help give us a sense of purpose, which is also, it turns out what our immune systems love. Our immune systems love it when we have a sense of purpose and some meaning in our lives. Um, that's, a, that's an awesome uh, response. Um, so with all the data you, you've collected from this book and everything you've learned, um, including being in nature now, um, what have you learned and applied to your life since doing all this research and writing this book? Yeah. I mean, so many things I now, um, I feel like I am someone who is more comfortable with uncertainty. 
I am more comfortable with big emotions. You know, I don't sort of run from them and hide anymore. Um, I think, you know, one of the effects of being in a long marriage that's maybe not so great is that you don't really open the lid, you know, on your heart because you don't necessarily want to know, you know, how maybe unloved you feel or how lonely you feel. And it's better just to like move forward, you know, with that smile on your face and get things done and, you know, do what you need to do as a mom or a dad or whatever. Um, but once you experience heartbreak and you like have have no choice but to feel those big emotions, in some ways, it's really liberating to know that you can experience them and get through the other side of them. And that by being comfortable with those big emotions and feeling the sort of full emotional range, you can also experience the positive emotions in more amplitude, right? So more joy, more love, more beauty. And it's possible sometimes to feel those emotions at the same time. So I now treasure those feelings. I I like feeling more alive. Um, I welcome the big emotions in and I feel like I'm more comfortable sort of riding them out, learning to sit with them, learning that every every feeling you have is sort of transient, right? Um, The stories that we tell ourselves are, are not necessarily the true stories. And sometimes we need to, you know, wait it out and see what happens. I have to ask about your first, um, I guess your first boyfriend. I don't know if you consider him a boyfriend, but after your divorce was, was, (laughs) you know, uh, his name was Ennis, right? Yeah. That's not his real name, but yeah. (laughs) Um, are you still in contact with him? Um, I am a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, you know, he, he's a really, he's a fun, charismatic, interesting guy at the time. He, he really believed he was helping me out, you know, by sort of, you know, in reintroducing me right to the, to the dating world. Um, it, it turned out to be like, not such a great experience on my part because I found out he had all these other girlfriends at the same time, you know, that he had neglected to tell me about. Um, and I mean, the dating world, right. is crazy. I mean, there are some crazy dudes out there and, um, you know, I, I, I still like Ennis, you know, for a lot of reasons, <laughs> but definitely not dating material. That's gotta be the most shocking, uh, welcoming back to the dating <laughs> scene. He's putting clamps on your nipples and all kinds of weird stuff. Oh. <laughs> like that's, uh, that's gotta be like, what were you thinking during that? Like, like this is the dating scene now. Like do- I was like, okay, I guess, I guess this is how it is now. I'll, I'll try it. Yeah. Why not? I'll try, I'll, I'll try it. I'll try it. You know, um, the, the bigger problem for me was that I didn't feel like he was super honest about what he was looking for, you know, or about these other women he was dating at the same time. Um, yeah. I liked, I liked how when you were interviewing him, he was, he was kind of saying like he was being honest, but not really, you know, he was like, well, I, I told you that I was, I was dating, but he didn't say that he's dating like nine women at the same time. <laughs> at the same time, right, right, uh, and 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 it turns out the other women didn't really know it either. <laughs> oh my gosh! So he must have been a really good liar then. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was cute. You know, <laughs> he was cute. That that he could sort of get away with a little bit for a while. Um, but yeah, I mean, for women my age, you know, fifty, it's like, I mean, I guess for women any age, you know, the whole dating scene is tricky. Um, there are some great guys out there and, and there are also some 
some that aren't so great. And uh, it's important, I think, to just really take the time to kind of feel safe and to say no if you want to say no and say yes if you want to say yes. And um, yeah, I mean, as I say, I do believe in love and I think sometimes, you know, it's it's worth it to, to try it. You there's the whole aspect of yourself and you going through the divorce and you, and you know, your ex-husband, but you had two children too. And I'm curious what that impact is or what science says about kids that go through a divorce. Um, have you looked at that at all? I mean, I'm sure you've had pretty candid discussions with your kids. Um, but what does the science tell us what that does to children? Yeah. I mean, I'm a child of divorce. Um, my ex was a child of divorce. One thing we do know, well, first of all, a lot of children divorce do just fine. Um, but we do know that they are a little bit more likely to experience divorce in their own lives. Um, they are at somewhat higher risk for um, substance abuse, um, you know, for doing poorly in school. But as I say, most kids do okay. And kids are pretty resilient and they're pretty adaptable. What really matters is how you parent and how you co-parent. And we were really clear to say to our kids, you know, first of all, I protected them, you know, a lot from, from my feelings, right, about their dad. Um, we said to them from the very beginning, we're still a family. You know, we still love you. You're still the center of our world. It's just going to look a little different from how it used to look. Now there's going to be two houses instead of one. And they weren't that interested in who's to blame and what happened and who did what. They were like, well, where am I going to keep my drum set? You know, <laughs> you know, what's going to happen for a spring break? You know, it was like kids are very pragmatic. And I think as long as you give them a ton of support, as you do to any kid, right, and you love them to pieces and they know it, um, you know, they're going to be okay. So what's the relationship look like now with your ex-husband? Is that still going strong? And um, obviously your, your kids are, you have one who's probably what, like 17 or 18 now? Yeah. So yeah. my youngest is now 18. Um, I'm going to be an empty nester pretty soon. So more transitions ahead, which, you know, I have mixed feelings about. I'm going to really miss her a lot. Um, yeah, we co-parent really well, actually. Um, neither of us is like crazy you know, or difficult or, um, you know, punishing or anything like that. And I, I know sometimes, you know, divorce really brings out the absolute worst in people. Um, I think we really tried to kind of, you know, um, be really, you know, mature about it. And because of our kids, you know, yeah. it's very motivating for us. Um, and so my relationship with, with my ex is um, it's, it's cordial. You know, we're not great friends um, for, I know I needed, some separation from him. I needed to kind of like firm up those boundaries and be like, I need to grow on my own. I really don't want you to keep coming over for dinner and using my shower, you know, and stuff that he was doing for a while. Um, and I, and I think I'm, I'm healthier because of, of those boundaries that I set up. That's great. So in, in, in closing the, the podcast, Florence, what's the one piece of advice that you can give to couples or, um, individuals who may be going through a rough patch and actually either breaking up or going through a, a divorce themselves, what is the one thing that would help them um, get to the other side? Yeah. So the first thing is like, take, really take this seriously, you know, feel these feelings, do what you need to do to get better. And I have this kind of three part 
kind of recovery plan that I suggest to people that's pretty adaptable for different personalities. Um, and the first part is calm. So you need to calm your nervous system to get out of fight or flight because it's the fight or flight that's driving these changes in your immune system, making it unable to sleep, you know, unable to sort of digest food well, stuff like that. Um, so however you find calm, whether it's, you know, through being outside or, um, you know, exercise or, you know, hanging out with your friends or, you know, yoga, whatever. Um, the second piece is connection. So calm and then connection. And again, this is an antidote to loneliness. Um, you know, really connect in an authentic way to the people in your lives who you love. So whether it's your family or your community, whether it's nature, you know, sometimes connecting with the natural world can also make us feel much more grounded uh, and less lonely, interestingly. Uh, and then the final piece is this sense of purpose and meaning. So what can you take from this experience? What have you learned from it that you can take moving forward? Um, how can you take these lessons ideally to help other people and to connect in a deeper way with other people? You know, sometimes it's, it's the cracks in our hearts, right? That can help us open up to more empathy and deeper connections um, and ultimately greater love with the people. Awesome. Well, Florence, we greatly appreciate your time. You know, you got a busy schedule, so we'll let you get to it. Um, where can people purchase your book and follow you on all the social media platforms and, and that good stuff? Yeah. Thanks so much for asking. Um, my website is florencewilliams.com. Um, there are links to the audiobook, um, to other, other writings, other books and um, social. So, Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. 